Hello there, and welcome to the Popcorn Tennis Podcast. I am your host, Nick Carter, as always. And uh, with me on this episode, um, have two guests to discuss uh, two different topics. Um, we have got Miles David of um, Missing the Point Pod fame. Um, and we have Hanya Fatani, um, who has uh, just published the latest of uh, many popcorn tennis pieces. We're going to be discussing that a little bit later. Um, but Miles is here to discuss uh, Guadalajara, the tournament that finished uh, on Sunday our time. We're recording on Wednesday, the 26th of October. Um, Miles, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. When you just broke down how much time has passed between the end of Guadalajara and like where we are today, it seems like in a way, so much time has passed, but in some ways, it's just been like a blink of an eye. So I'm happy to be on the podcast and talk about the final women's 1000 of the year. A lot went, a lot happened in that tournament, so I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, that was, that was quite a big event. Um, and uh, I'm already getting WTA withdrawal systems, so I'm going <laughs> to really enjoy um, Fort Worth when that gets underway on Monday. Um, Anya, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Excellent, good to hear. Um, yes, we're um, uh, we're recording uh, fairly late in the UK, um, so yeah. uh, I appreciate um, us uh, you staying up for to, for the discussion. Um, so we're going to start with um, Guadalajara, um, and. It was an interesting event because we were missing the top two players in the world. Neither Igor Shviontek nor Andrzej showed up. Um, I don't think the tournament suffered, though. And um, I think um, people who eventually did quite well were probably quite grateful they weren't there. <laughs> um, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think let's talk about... Um, I think... We'll start with the main headline from the event and kind of work our way through some of the other notable ones. Um, I'd say the tournament's going to be remembered for two things. It's going to be remembered for the absolutely insane WTA finals race that was happening and that was completely dominating the narrative throughout the entire tournament. Um, we'll come back to that because that's something that we can start to look forward. Um, mm -hmm. Focusing on looking back, um, this was Jessica Pagula's first... WTA 1000 title, first of the year, and second in her career. It's long time coming. Miles, you and I have discussed um, Jessica, Jesse, JPEG before, um, and sort of how strong she's been. And really, I think we'll talk about her opponent a little bit later, but I personally am actually very pleased for her that she won this title. I think it's a long time coming. A um, little bit of a stat, um, up and before this event, um, eight out of the 17 events she'd played before Guadalajara, um, she lost the eventual champion, got that stat from J.I. Um, and uh, so if you think about it, if she's played 18 points this year, half of them, she's either won or lost the eventual champion. So that's pretty good going. That's a darn good stat. That means you have to be playing very well to beat Pagula, which, you know, I think that's the kind of player she has formed herself or carved out a lane for herself in the past season or two. 
is you have to be at your best to play her like nine times out of 10 because she's not going to beat herself. And I'm happy that she finally lifted a really, really noteworthy and big title because I, I, I often say this phrase, I feel like some players in the past couple of seasons in the WTA are really, really good as far as making their way up the rankings, but they don't quite have their quote-unquote moment in the sun and I feel like Jessica finally had her moment in the sun and you can kind of see how much she was beaming and happy in the trophy ceremony so I'm happy that she um, again just has her moment to, to stand and be recognized as an elite WTA player. Yeah finally reflecting her ranking because at the moment she's top three now uh, which and that's coming from her from her consistency and I agree with you she's been the benchmark for the WTA tour a bit like Krajikova was last year. Um, she's she yeah, you're right. She has been very much the player to be. If you if you beat her, you're on you're on to something good. And I, I don't think she's really had any bad days this year. Like any like maybe one or two losses, you're like really, but not that man. That's that's indicative of um, a top player. I think the moment I thought, oh, I think she's gonna win this was actually when she saved match point to beat Elena Rabakina in what was it the um first round like second or third round i believe second it was round. the first match she played yeah it no, was the, it was the second round yeah. for, but uh second round for pagula yeah second round for both of them but uh, pagula had a first round bye yeah that's what that was and, and i watched that match that was crazy i, I really enjoyed watching it um and i thought rebecca was going to win it i i was i think we were watching it on a twitter space together we and, were. <laughs> um, I was like, I was taught, I was thinking Rebecca is going to get Guadalajara. She's going to come for this. She's going to get herself into the WTA finals. And then Pagula just stopped her in her tracks. Like it wasn't a Rebecca collapse. Pagula fought her way to that win. Um, yeah, that was a great result. And when I saw, I was like, that's the kind of match point coming from match point down that starts a title run that you see so often in tennis. Um, and the way she kind of came through several slam champions as well. She had a tough role. Yeah, in a row, yeah. Rabakina, Andrescu, Sloan Stevens, uh, and then Azarenka in the semifinals, and then Sakari in the final. Four of those five players have all lifted a Grand Slam trophy. So at their uh, at their most elite level, they can play championship winning tennis. So for her to beat them consecutively like that, and I don't know if she had that many she couldn't have had that many days off, if any, because it was only a one-week event. So at the end of the season, when most people are kind of, you know, either gearing up for the year in finals or just calling it a, 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 a season, she really kind of put the pedal to the metal and was able to, you know, add some silverware to her trophy cabinet, which, in my opinion, I feel like solidifies the season that she's she's had and then solidifies her as a as a serious contender for bigger titles moving forward, hopefully. <laughs> yeah hopefully obviously i was going to say from an american perspective but actually do you know what i'd be very happy to see her win um a wta title i actually think she's one of the more fun and engaging players on the tour especially when you see her on twitter um the moment i was like oh i quite like her is when um uh she replied to courtney hewan um when she mentioned about eager i think when eager's streak started going and got to number one. And I can't remember what exact tweet was, but I think Pagula replied to her thinking it was private, saying, oh no, or something along <laughs> those lines. <laughs> she got me Miami. on a, 
Yeah, I think it was something like that because they've she's lost to to Swiatek four times this year, and after the most recent loss at well, actually the second most recent loss at the U.S. Open in the quarterfinals, she solidified that I thought she was a really cool girl when she came to the press conference drinking a beer, and she said it was going to help her um, use the restroom easier and facilitate the <laughs> drug testing <laughs> that she had to do. <laughs> so I was I was on board with Jessica Pagula as soon as she did that. <laughs> Well, Jessica, there's no uh, performance-enhancing drugs in here, but you didn't need to drink that much beer. <laughs> I, I, I do believe beer is supposed to, like, uh, make you use the restroom or something like yeah, that. It, it does. Um, I think I think most of us who'd have, who, who've had enough of it can confirm. <laughs> I can either confirm or deny. <laughs> <laughs> This is not that kind of podcast. Um, <laughs> with um, uh, with Pagula and her, um, you talking about her uh, and sort of the fact that she's still maintaining this level even late in the year when everyone's tired. I think that comes down to the way the game is. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not the biggest hitter on the like. She's a big hitter, uh, but not the biggest. Um, she can produce winning shots, but. Um, She's not a counter-puncher either. She's somewhere between the two. Um, she just brings a consistent level to every match and doesn't seem to overexert herself. Um, I think that's kind of my read on it. Um, you probably watch more of her matches if you have any thoughts on the Gula's game. If I had to put her in a category, counter-puncher would be the category I'd like just stick her in. And just watching her game a lot this season – a lot of the women that consider themselves um, power players or big hitters or the women that are more like tactical and use finesse, they're, um, how do I put this? Like their stroke production is interesting. And I, I find that Jessica Bagula's stroke production is very, very simple, which allows her to be a super effective counterpuncher, especially on her forehand. She doesn't really take a big swing. She doesn't really have a super extreme grip. She plays flat. It's just very, um, to use a very Americanized phrase, it's very meat and potatoes tennis. She doesn't do anything super flashy. She doesn't have a ne- she doesn't necessarily have a shot that just can break a rally open. But she's not going to give you super um, head scratching mistakes that often either. So you really have to you really have to build a point consistently over and over again to end up with the win over Pagula. And that's that's that consistency on the WTA. Um, to steal, to steal another phrase that I've heard from other tennis podcasts, consistency isn't the most marketable thing, um, especially if you don't have like that uh, highlight real level shot. But I do appreciate her level of professionalism that you know you're going to go out there and get a player that tracks down every ball and does her best to win the point every single chance she gets. So all of that combined, it's with a player like that, she was eventually going to have her moment in the sun. I'm just happy that she had it this season. Yeah, and she deserved to have this season. Yeah. Um, I think you've broken down her game really well and really explained it, um, really clarified what I've seen uh, much better than I could have. Um, I think, um, yeah, I, it's interesting. I don't know how long you've been watching Pagula. I've only really become more aware of her as she's had success. Um, what do you think that she's, what's changed in her game that shot her up to, the elite level. Has something changed or is she just better at executing? 
from what I've seen, I, I distinctly remember watching her in the 2020 Auckland final against Serena. And there's not much technically different about her game. I just think a lot of it has to do with her belief system. Um, believing that when she goes up against players that are ranked above her, that if she plays her best, she's going to make it very difficult for them to beat her. And I feel like that gives anybody a world of confidence. I believe her her biggest, like her breakthrough moment was the 2021 Australian Open where she made the quarterfinals. And I think she beat Svitolina to get there. And Svitolina is also a very similar player. Like you technically sound not going to give you too many too many free errors. And I believe Fidelita must have been a top 10 player. And when you do things like that on the, the, the sports grandest stage, that is supposed to give you a level of confidence that you can repeat that. And I think that's what we've seen all season with her getting to big finals in Madrid. And uh, I think she got to the semifinals of Toronto, quarterfinals of Australia, the French Open and US Open. When you are consistently going up to the net and shaking hands as the winner, that has to put some level of confidence in your in your game and re- and make you realize that you're doing something successful. And going back to what you were saying earlier, like consistency isn't is uh, underrated in tennis as a whole, not just women's tennis, men's tennis as well. It, you're right; it's not the most marketable thing. It's what brings success. It's what makes someone a ten top ten player is winning matches on a regular basis. I think Gula, most of the tournaments she's won at least two. Yeah. And like one or two where that's not happened. Yeah, she's uh, like, yeah, she's consistently um, stringing together back to wins. I think that most WTA players, even in the top 10, can't seem to do. The only other person I can think of who does that on a regular basis is Shviontek. Um, maybe Jabir, depending on um, how consistent she, she's had dips, but. She has had multiple consistent runs throughout the year. Um, but there's a reason those three are the top three right now. And um, I think the, the stat that someone published, I should fact check this to remember who actually published it, but this is the first time since 2010 that there are two American women in the top four of the WTA rankings, and that's been since Venus and Serena. And it's those the two women now include Jessica Pagula and Coco Golf, who are both at career highs. So, I mean, hopefully they keep it up, especially Pagula um, and Coco, of course. But since we're talking about Guadalajara, Pagula deserves a little bit more shine. <laughs> Just a yes, and she's not really been getting shine in comparison because, yeah. well, Goff is the new superstar, let's be honest, of tennis. And um, there's something... There's there's something interesting about the dynamics of Pagula, especially when you look at her age. Like she's closer to 30 than she is to 25. And typically, I'm using air quotes here, but typically women, um, or I shouldn't say women, tennis players in general don't have their big breakthrough success as they get closer to 30. So she's not some up and coming uh player that you can put just that very cliche marketing tool next gen on top of she's just very workmanlike and i do think that that there is something marketable about marketable about that especially if you take it one step further and look at her background as a um heir to billionaire parents that own like an nfl football team the buffalo bills i believe yeah so if she wanted to and this is another reason why i respect her if she wanted to she could like 
if if she would have played five years or so on the WTA tour and not really seen much success, she could have always packed up her things and be like, I'm going to be comfortable financially, regardless of what happens to me because of, you know, the situation I was born into. But she, you know, she dug into her heels and wanted her own success off of her own merit. So that to me is why I tip my hat to her a lot. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, yeah, we talked about this before. Um, Yeah. I'm really impressed by the way she's gone out and made her own name. And there are people out there who are still, you know, a little bitter about the fact that she has money. Um, but I, I, it doesn't bother me. I think, again, I think she's got a really cool personality. She's really grounded. And I think it has come from the attitude of going out there and working hard and getting her way up to the top, grinding her way there. And that, that sort of that really sums up her game. So um, I hope when it comes to, US Open, she's still in the top 10. She's still um, a big name and um, she'll get some star billing alongside people like Goff and Collins. They are probably your star. And, and Kenan, I suppose, as well, if she gets a top Kenan is currently playing an ITF tournament in Tyler, Texas. So hopefully this time next year, we're talking about her maybe qualifying for the year in finals or being close. Because I do, I do kind of miss her game in the mix a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've almost forgotten how she plays, to be honest, because I can't remember the last time I've seen her play well. Um, probably <laughs> two years ago at the French Open. She only um, has four wins at WTA level this year. Four wins. Like, um, that's, um, well, that's, that's yeah, that's yeah. shocking. That's that's the kind of stat that we think Emma Raducanu has. <laughs> I think Raducanu gonna... may have more than that, but, you know. He has, no, she, she's won way more than that. She's she's not she's had a pretty solid year, but we're not she didn't play Guadalajara, so we don't need to talk about her. Um <laughs> someone we can talk about, and almost someone who's been in very similar category to Pagula um that you mentioned earlier, um in terms of like having that star moment, um, is Zachary, Maria Zachary, who lost in the final um six two, six three. It was fairly straightforward. I do think I I couldn't watch it because the time zone was too much of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, which starts at midnight my time. I had work at eight thirty a.m. UK time. It was going to be a challenge to watch that and then go to work. Um, but um, uh, maybe one day, one day it will be my job. But um, the um, uh, but that final looked fairly straightforward for Google, But from what I did see. I do feel like Pagula brought it. I don't necessarily think Sakari folded, but you probably watched the match, so you can correct me on that. Um, and in some ways, maybe Sakari had already kind of played her final when she beat Kutamitova to qualify for Fort Worth. Um, and that was a big result for her. Um, she was kind of at a disadvantage because of weather issues. Her semifinal was... Uh, brought into on the Sunday. So she had to finish up her semifinal against Marie Bushkova and then play the final after some suitable rest. So I think she was at a little bit of a disadvantage in that aspect. However, if anybody sees her, she's a very impressive physical specimen. She she shows off how hard she works off the court. So um, I don't think that was the issue. I think she just has a, she has 
how do I phrase this? She has somewhat of an elite performance anxiety issue. Like her mission this week was to win enough to qualify for the year ending championships. And she just made it. She's the number eight player in the race. And she had to beat some pretty impressive people who's, who've had good seasons to do that. She had to beat Marie, uh, was it, sorry, Marta Kostic in the, in her opening round. Then she had to follow that up with the win over Daniel Collins after being down a set. And then she had to beat Kuda Matova, who was also in the same uh, running for the year-end championships as well. And that match was a nerve fest. But I, I do appreciate how she was able to fight her nerves to accomplish the mission. But it is still worrisome that she can get to the latter stages of a tournament. And in that same tournament that she's played well in and kind of forget the things that got her to that semifinal or final round. And that unfortunately reared its head against uh, Jessica Pagula. Pagula just did what she normally does, which is play solid. And Sakari, I believe, has a few more weapons, especially on her forehand side, and she has a more potent, potent serve. So if you were to ask me before the match, just based off of X's and X's and O's, who would be, who would I take in that matchup and who I actually picked to win the matchup was Maria Sakari. Cause I just felt like her, she had, she had basically been battle tested all, all week and was playing with extra pressure because Pagula had already qualified. So I thought this was going to be her moment in the sun, but again, the 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 issue she has with performing when I, I call it like when everyone's watching, because everyone's watching on a Sunday to see if you're going to be the person lifting the trophy. And she's so likable. She just seems like a very likable girl. The way she speaks to the crowd, it's it's hard to not root for her, but there's something missing between the execution of her game and performing at the highest level when it's when it's really time. And we've kind of seen that this season and yeah prior. and with with anything around sort of mentality and match attitude without knowing the person it's difficult to put your finger on it um i'm sure she's working on it i'm you know she might benefit from going down a route on has gone down with picking up a sports psychologist and having that as regular part of the team kind of popping she on pet model um that could be a way for, for her to go. I mean, interestingly, you said that because actually I would have said the same thing about Pagula going into the final. I think they had both, they were, aside from game matchup, they both had very similar runs. They were both battle hardened and they both wanted a big title. Um, and they were both due a big title. Um, and I actually would have backed Pagula in that match because I trust her consistency more than Sakharov. Um this is obviously all well and good me saying that after the event because I can look like a genius after that. Um, <laughs> but um, I, but everything you've said about Sakari, I agree with. And yeah, you know, she may well find breakthrough and get that title. Um, she's got the game for it. She, when she wants to bring it, she brings it. Um, and it's very telling that a lot of her really interesting matches happen sort of mid tournament. Um mm-hmm. Like the Kudamatova match, yes, that was a nerf fest. That was practically a playoff final uh, because, like, whoever won was going to qualify, um, guaranteed. Um, and I'm sad I missed that match, but nerf fest probably might not have been the best one. But, um, Some people think I'm a little scared for for consistently believing in Sakari. And I do, I, I do believe she's going to knock down the wall in front of her, which is to get 
either a another title under her belt whether that be 250 again or 500 or like get herself into the finals of a grand slam or lift a wta 1000 i think she has the goods and it's kind of because i'm a little bit of a sucker for a flashy game not that her game is super flashy but in comparison to the person she lost to in the final i think you can make a more uh exciting highlight reel of sakari's best best points and moments especially given the way she moves around the court and her forehand and stuff like that i believe in her she just doesn't make it easy sometimes <laughs> no I mean, we have to remember that you know i mean i if you told me two years ago that maria sakari would be top 10 or at least before that serena williams match during the pandemic i probably would have gone really um uh, because she wasn't really doing that much um She's she got the consistency together and the big performances together enough to break top ten, and she's herself in there. And um, yes, okay, her she's not gone to she's not reached Grand Slam semi-finals this year, um, but she she still reached the Indian Wells final. She still got to the Para final. Um, those are not insignificant results. Um, no. They're just uh, they're just rated in a different way, and I think she wasn't in the sharp end of tournaments in the same way. As she was last year, which is why she's number eight rather than what was she in 2021? I believe she was like four or five. Yeah, she was top four, top five. And like she yeah. got to number two this year off the back of that. Yeah. Imagine if we lived in a world where Sakari had actually beaten Swiatek to get to world number two, and then Ash Brody retires and Sakari's the person that's playing for that world number one ranking. Oh, we would have, we would have had a diabolical mess on our hands just given what we know given what we know about Sakari and her ability to kind of handle the biggest nerves in the sport I don't know if she would have handled we say that she qualified for the WTA finals under pressure she was the underdog in that race because could have been had the points and I think she might have depending on what she needed to secure one she probably would have secured one and still lost and then lost in the final or something and that's probably how I would have seen that going and (laughs) Whether she stayed at one, probably wouldn't have stayed at one for very long. Um, but this is this weird parallel universe um, where this could happen. I mean, to be fair, watching the beginning of that Indian Wells final, those opening games were very nervy. And it was Biontech who was the one who stabilised first and took control. And then Sakari just couldn't get a foothold after that. Which um, is so interesting. Win. That's so interesting because at one point, I remember Sakari having a very... I wouldn't say that soccer or that I wouldn't say that Swiatek was necessarily Sakari's pigeon, but the head to head between Maria Sakari and Iga Swiatek wasn't as uh, lopsided as it is now, I guess. I, I remember that Sakari was the player to beat Swiatek in the quarters, I believe, of the French Open in 2021. And that was a fairly routine match. So there is some level in Sakari that knows how to compete against the best and the best is Swiatek right now. I just think that maybe she needs a, I, I feel two ways about what I'm about to say. Cause in, in, in certain, in a certain scenario, and I, I do believe tennis is one of those sports where you have to have a high comfort level and being around people that you know and can trust really does bring out a certain level in your game. So I don't necessarily think she needs to have a drastic change in her team, but I do believe at this point, she could probably benefit from either an advisor, like you mentioned earlier, like a mental, a sports psychiatrist, or maybe a very seasoned coach who has been able to take 
a player who's been on the precipice of Grand Slam titles and kind of bring them over that edge. I think uh, I think Sven Gronfeld is working with Bianca Andreescu now, but like coaches that have worked with Kim Kleisters, because Kim Kleisters was very similar. She would always reach semifinals and some finals and not really bring home the biggest trophy. And we've seen players have that very that struggle of performing well I think she could she could use somebody that is that is a seasoned professional and knows how to work with players that are almost there that just need like that extra five or ten percent yeah I think I think that's fair and maybe we'll see that in 2023 maybe we'll see that in Fort Worth Um, maybe it depends on how the groups fall um is there anyone else from uh Guadalajara uh, any other stories from Guadalajara that may be worth telling any other players that kind of stood out to you from, from the event? I've got like three, but let's see if you mentioned them first. Well, there was an American player who uh, raised my eyebrow by the name of Sloan Stevens. <laughs> and Sloan yeah. Stevens, she has not done a lot of eyebrow raising this year, but apparently there's something that she really likes about the conditions in Guadalajara because she won the 250 that was played there in February earlier of this year, before there was even the WTA 1000 on the schedule. But the wins she picked up this week were pretty darn good. I, I had her losing to the up-and-coming Linda Favritova. One day I'm going to get down. One day I'm going to get that down. But she spanked her six love six two, and then she took out Benchich, and Benchich was a top ten seed. And also she took out she took out Caroline Garcia right after that. So those wins right there are pretty much the highlights of her season outside of maybe getting to the quarterfinals of the French Open. So apparently there's something that she likes in the air at Guadalajara, and hopefully she's in that. I think her and Jessica Bagula are the same age. Actually, I believe Stone Stevens twenty eight. Maybe she'll be 29 this year. Oh, she's 29 now. She'll be 30 next year. So I believe, I want to believe, I should say, that she has like a a second gear or second wind in her career that could see her getting back to Grand Slam semifinals or and finals and winning big titles like Miami that she has before. Because she, the level that she showed in in the tournament in Guadalajara last week proves to me that it's in her when she wants to show it because some matches you watch Sloan Stevens and it looks like she'd, she'd rather be doing anything else than playing tennis because there's not a whole bunch of focus and grit but she showed a lot of that this week so hopefully that's just a inkling into something she's working on going into the 2023 season so that was interesting to me. I don't think Sloan's actually had a bad season as you said quarterfinals of Ron Garros 250 win for her okay for a Grand Slam champion Maybe yeah. not amazing, but for how she's been the last couple of years, that's not bad. It um, wasn't terrible, but there were definitely some head scratching losses in this season. Definitely some head scratchers. I was like, wow. <laughs> even her loss to Pagula, 6 2, 6 2. I turned on the beginning of that match and then I turned it off because I just immediately knew how it was going. Sloan was not quite there. Um, whereas, by contrast, that win against Garcia, I loved that match. He brought it and Garcia put up a really good fight and it was like two really close sets, but Sloan, you could tell, had that grit you talked about. And then that just, I think her game just completely went away when she played Pagula. She's one of those players where it's She's one of those players where it's easily identifiable, like in her eyes and in her demeanor, if she's locked into a match. Um, And unfortunately, she doesn't have a great reputation of always being locked in. But when she is... 
it's something it's something to to watch similar to someone else i guess wanted to to i guess shout out from guadalajara victoria azarenka um she has a way of winning and putting together matches when you least expect it at this point in her career which is interesting because 10 years ago it, almost exactly 10 years ago she goes into the year and finals in 2012 as like almost a player to beat and now you know 2022 she's aged a little bit she's of course had a child she's not in the mix at the very elite level of the sport but when she digs in and looks very committed and focused she can pick up wins like she beat madison keys in three sets this week, she beat Coco Golf in a very good match. She had a win over Paula Bedosa, but Paula Bedosa ended up retiring, um, which is something we have to keep an eye on, I believe. Do, do you think Do you think we have to keep an eye on that? Possibly. I can't remember what the injury was. That's the problem. <laughs> I never know what her injuries are. She always, which I, I never want to see a player hobbled or like in excruciating pain when they retire, because that's not fun to see either. But it always does make me... It makes me question, similar to when Novak Djokovic had that period where he was very uh, criticized for retiring or not looking like he's giving his all in matches. But those was retired in quite a quite a few matches this year as a very high seed. So it just makes me wonder, like, is her body keeping up with some of the stress of the elite tour or 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 whatever is going on? It's just something I, I'm I'm keeping an eye on. That's for sure. But kudos well, to Azarain for taking advantage of that. Yeah, worth keeping an eye on. I'm hoping that Bedosa finds fitness because when she's on, she's incredible to watch and she brings a lot of entertainment. Um, Azarenka was a player, was one of the players that kind of stood out to me because it's funny because, yeah, um, we talked about Pagula and Sakharin and I was watching them going, these could be title runs. I was also watching Azarenka going, this could be a title run. That win against Keys was good. The win against Goff was good. Um, they both put up good fights. I think Azarenka picked up some kind of injury against Pagula, but she really put up a good fight in that first set and mm-hmm. could have won it. But whether that injury kicks in midway through the first set or not, but Pagula had to fight back in the match. Um, and it's nice to see Azarenka doing well, although it does seem to be an annual thing now where she'll put together a late hardcore run in the season um, and then just not quite get there. Um, but yeah, I, look, long may she be a part of the game to come because uh i think she's a great addition to the sport um again really good uh, i really like her personality um i think uh he's she's definitely um had a rough year um but um yeah we're good to see her playing well and hopefully we see that a little bit more often again uh but yeah really really impressive performances she's in the she's in the category along with a couple other players that I uh, tend to think they do this this thing where they kind of find their form in the most random times where you really didn't see it coming. Uh, Angelique Kerber does that. Uh, Petra Kvitova does that. And Simona Halep, to an extent, does that as well. And Garbine Muguruza, all of them are in like very similar age range. They all have very interesting head-to-heads against each other. And all of them, I guess you can say in this, quote unquote latter half of their careers, they just spring to life whenever you least expect it. And it's, they're not somebody that you necessarily want to see in your section of the draw because they have so much experience, but they can they can definitely put in a um a good performance when it when it matters most for them. And Azarenka just has a way of doing it on hard courts at the end of the season. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, maybe maybe so when we go back to Guadalajara next year, as it looked like we might be, everyone's going to be dreading seeing her in their uh, in their section of the draw. Um, what did you make of Coco Goff's tournament? Um, not, seemed pretty standard to me. Like yeah, standard not, golf performance. Exactly. No solid performance. Not also pretty good in her matches, and then runs into someone who's having a better day. Yeah, I agree. Nothing, nothing came from it that I was really shocked by or um, really super impressed by. I think she's just carried on a, a certain level in her game that has seen her become a top five player in the world and world number one in doubles. So her draw was favorable. Um, she beat Cacieto uh, in her second round and opening round because of the first round bye. And then she beat Trevisan, who she pretty much uh dis dis disarmed in the French Open semis. So that was a kind draw as far as draws go. So nothing really nothing huge no no huge takeaways. I think she competed well in the match against Azarenka. She just came up against a player that has a bit more experience um and just loves the hard court even probably more than Coco Golf does. So um yeah I think she has a adequate amount of confidence going into Fort Worth and I'm I'm interested to see how she deals with the atmosphere of playing with the top eight players in the world all around her. I mean there's there's reasons to be positive um like you said like her her wins were against players you would expect her to be um but at the same time she handled that status really well she's now a top four player at 18. Um, and she, if she's winning matches comfortably that she's expected to, that's a very positive sign for her because there was a point where we weren't sure she was able to do that. And she's definitely doing that now. So I think if she's able to, to win against players she should be, she can compete against the best, as she did against Azarenka. Took it to yep. a third, made it close. And I don't think she was playing her best. Like, I don't think she was playing at her most elite level all week. And she still made the quarterfinals of a Masters 1000, which is pretty... That's that you know. That's something to not shake your head at. So um, I'm proud of her. I'm, I'm proud of the season she's put together. I would love to see in, in in my ulterior like Miles has his way universe. I love when a player goes into the year in the championships and like either does well or wins, and then heads into the Australian Open as a player to beat and finds themselves like in the semis or finals or something like that. Hopefully, fingers crossed for for that trajectory for Coco Golf, but knowing me, I probably just jinxed her. So <laughs> we've seen that we have seen that in previous years. Like Mugarufa yeah. won 2021, had a decent run in um how did she do in Australia? Actually she might have crashed down. Yeah, I think... <laughs> Ignore Mugarufa. But um Barty, you know, mm-hmm. 2019 got the semis in 2020. Um mm-hmm. Fosniaki did the double in 1718. It's it's definitely uh-huh. doable. Um, it's a thing. It's a thing. I, the, the person that I think about the most, um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm showing my age in tennis, in tennis land. But I remember Moresmo did that. Moresmo won her biggest title of her career at the year-ending championships in 2005, and then 2006 rolled around, and she won the Australian Open in a bit of a weird final against Inan. But I always attribute that double to Moresmo in my mind for some reason. <laughs> and. Generally, what I find is um, the Australian Open champion or someone who goes deep in Australia is generally someone who has kind of, if you take, if you were to rank the top 10 based on peak results, so getting to a slam final, 
um, winning the tour finals, winning a Masters from the previous season, generally they're the ones who end up winning in Australia, unless you're Sophia Kennan and, <laughs> and all the bets are off. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's doable. But before we, we dig into Fort Worth and uh, probably won't spend that much long, that long on it, um, because I appreciate we've got Hanya waiting, but uh, Marie Bruskova, is she a player that we need to take a bit more seriously? I would venture to say, not to be harsh, but I would venture to say no, because I have seen her play quite a few times. She came onto my radar in 2019 when I believe she made the semifinals in Toronto. She lost to Serena, and I was impressed. I think she picked up a win against Halep there, and I was impressed again earlier this season because she made the final of the two the WTA 250 in Guadalajara so there's something about Guadalajara that she likes as well <laughs> um I, I think she'll be a very workmanlike player somebody again that's going to make you earn the victory over her but I don't see anything sparkling that makes me believe that she's a future like top 15 player I could be wrong I'd love to be proven wrong but I, I don't, and she also had a, a quarterfinal appearance at Wimbledon this year. I think some of that was based off of the draw crumbling around her and her just taking advantage of it, which is, you know, not, no disrespect to her. You you play who you play um, when the draw is made out. But, you know, I, I think she'll be a consistent top 40, top 30 player. I think if she's one of those players that like gets a top, like a number 30, number 29, 28 type of seed at a Grand Slam, We'll see what happens, but I don't expect her to be at the later rounds of big tournaments consistently. I would agree. I would agree. I don't necessarily think uh, I'm not calling her to win uh, slams or be contender for slam titles or masters titles or anything like that. Um, what I would probably say is I think judging by her performances this year in both Guadalajara's at Wimbledon at points in the clay season, um, like she's come on people's radar a little bit as kind of someone who comes through these draws every so often. And um, she won, I, I think she's she's won a 250 this year. I forget which one. That was um, my face I just made. I was like, I could have sworn she won a title this year and she didn't get broken or something to win it. Something There was some weird stat from that tournament. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, Prague. Yes. Her home country in Czech Republic. Yeah, so that was, a, that, and that's, you know, that's nothing to be, to be sniffed at. So I think uh, Bushkov is going to be one of those players that she could be a, a, a dangerous sleeper and a draw and take out a top player. Um, I certainly would be a little bit nervous if I saw her in my draw if I was, you know, any good at tennis. Um, but uh, the, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if she fought her way to a Grand Slam semi-final once in her career. I think I could see her doing something like that. Um Maybe she'll prove us wrong and go even further. And I'd love to see that because, <laughs> again, great personality. Seems really likable. Um, she's always one of those players that, like, TikTok tennis always seems to like to promote um, mm -hmm. on Twitter. Um, they're a fun account to follow if you don't. I love TikTok. Um, shout out to James. <laughs> yeah, shout out to James. Love the, uh, love the contact. Keep it up. Um, so, but, yeah, I, I think that she's, she's, she's someone to, to, who's – is a danger who might be nervous playing but should be confident-ish against it. I think you know, if she has a major breakthrough anywhere, it's going to be a little draw-dependent. 
Um, not because she's another player that doesn't strike me as having overwhelming weapons, just a player that is pretty technically sound all around um, and easy to root for. But again, I don't necessarily see a super high ceiling. But, you know, Marie Buscovy, if you're listening to this, please feel free to prove us all wrong. <laughs> One thing I love about tennis is I love being proved wrong. Love being proved wrong about players because it make, nothing makes me happier. Yeah. And then to see someone smiling and holding a trophy and me going, fair play, I was wrong. Did not um, see that. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk a little bit like five minutes on Fort Worth, WTA finals. Um, I'm excited. It's, I love the tour finals. I love seeing the top eight crash on a regular basis. I actually think round robin matches are so much fun all the time because there's so much tension in every match. Um, and it's nice that a player, if they lose, doesn't necessarily go home. Um, I think I think the narrative at the minute seems to be is going, Iga Shvantec is going in as the heavy favourite, given that she's pretty much beaten everyone else in the field, apart from Caroline Garcia, who is not having the best end of the season. Um, a lot going to depend on Shvantec's fitness, though. Um, and how she handles the occasion um, of being this you know, number one, definitive number one going into it. Um, I don't know if that's how you see it as well, um, but are there any other kind of storylines that might be sticking out to you? Like, that would be interesting to see how that develops. It definitely feels like it is Iga Swiatek versus everyone else. It definitely feels like that. But I'm interested to see how everyone else kind of deals with the lack of pressure because if anybody else wins it they're not going to be the person that people really saw on paper lifting the trophy um it wouldn't it be interesting if Igus Swiatek doesn't even get out of her section like out of a round robin section that would be like ooh, mind blown um and again if she if she does waver a little bit at this point in the season I would give her a, a huge amount of grace because she's played and won 60-something matches this this season. That's a lot of wear and tear on the body. And I don't think necessarily that she loves playing indoors. Um, and that's evident by her run in Ostrava, which is weird to say because she got to the final of that tournament, but it wasn't it wasn't a typical Iga Swiatek 2022-6-2-6-love, like 6-3-6-1 victories along the way. She really had to battle. And she ended up losing to Krajcikova in a very great match. But I'm interested to see how the dynamics of her playing indoors in America against people that have nothing really to lose and see how it shakes up. I, I believe the crowd is obviously going to go um, really hard for Jessica Bagula and Coco Golf. So if she plays either of them at any stage of the match, I'm, I'll be interested to see how she deals with that, that pressure of not being the, the crowd favorite. Um, but it's hard to say that she won't come away with the victory given the level of tennis she's shown all year and just coming off the backs of a title in San Diego. So, you know. I wasn't aware it was indoors. I thought it was outdoors. So there you go. I'm, I need to pay more attention. No, I've just checked it is indoors. Um, pretty sure but, it is, yeah. Yeah, uh, which changes my perspective a little bit because I thought it was outdoors. I was like, well, if it's outdoors, then that even cements Eager's favourite. But now I've realised it's indoors. Yeah, I, I I can see your assessment. She might be a little bit more vulnerable. Um, and you're right about the wear and tear on the body. Like, yeah, I would, 
give her a pass. Although a lot of people would say, well, you, of course you would. You're a really good Spion Tech fan. Um, shout out to all the people I've annoyed with that over the <laughs> over um, past year on Twitter. Um, no apologies. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, gosh, I'm going to be unbearable, aren't I? Can <laughs> I? Can I say who I think would be a very interesting sleeper pick? If it's not Coco Golf, I actually think Sabalenka has a pretty decent chance. And she's a player that has shown that she's feel, she feels very comfortable on the indoor surface. I believe at the end of 2020, she won Ostrava and Lens back-to-back. Mm-hmm. So I think she's pretty comfortable with how her game feels on an indoor uh, court that's a little bit quicker and not as many elements to kind of go awry with her serve. So I'm interested to see. I, I I think she's one of the players that at least on court gives off the persona that she feels like she can beat anybody across the net from her with her style of play, even Iga Swiatek. So if there's like mm-hmm. a if there's an outside pick that's not Swiatek and maybe not like a going with my heart pick, it would probably be Sabalenka. I wouldn't be surprised if she's if she's I mean, I'd be a little surprised, but I wouldn't necessarily be utterly shocked if she lifts the trophy. And there's a there's a certain power playerness that like Iga still struggles with. Um so I would agree, and I think that's the kind of is the kind of positions that she would uh she would definitely enjoy. Um uh, in comparison, so yeah, and and to me, Sabalenka is kind of the wild card pick of the bunch, um, outside of Zachary, maybe of kind of how did she get there? Because if you told me like after the French Open, Arena Sabalenka is going to make the WTA finals and be the fifth seed, I'd be like, what? Um, she's had a very sneaky, like very sneaky, consistent season. I believe she's gotten to the finals of two two fifties, and she got to the finals again of Stuttgart. Yeah. No, yeah. So I mean, yeah. three three finals of tournaments and a semifinal of a major goes a long way. It does, especially that semifinal of a major. And it was a really good run at that US Open. So I'm not mocking her. Um, I just didn't expect that kind of run from her. Um she's definitely earned her uh earned her place. Um do you think Goff and Pagula's performance might be affected by the fact that they're playing doubles as well? Yes and, yeah, yes and no. I do think like after the end of a long season, it could go either, it could go one of two ways. Because they've played so much together this season, they can go into their into that tournament feeling super comfortable because they are aware of how each other plays and they're pretty aware of how their opponents are going to play as a team. So they can just kind of go in there with uh their shoulders relaxed and just play their best tennis or we can see the end of the season kind of catch up to them and them feeling like, oh my gosh, it's been a long season of playing singles and doubles. Let's just kind of get this over with, which I don't necessarily feel they're going to do that because they're both too competitive, but humans are humans, you know? So anything, anything can happen, but I don't necessarily see either of them as the favorite in singles and doubles. I wouldn't be shocked if they win it all. I think maybe Krychikova and Sinyakova have something to say about that. Um, But in singles, I don't see they're obviously they're threats, but I'd I'd be a little bit more shocked if either of them lifted the trophy. Realistically, I'd love for one of them to do it, but realistically, I see some other uh, players lifting the trophy. And you you said Sabalenka was the wild card for you. Like, how did she get there? 
Yeah. To me, that's Casakina. I, I have I I completely forget when I start naming the eight players that Casakina's in there. She's she's sneaky good, like the most sneaky good player of the of this eight. Like I just don't think about her at first when I think about elite tennis players. Not that she's bad or I think she's boring. It's just that for some reason there's a disconnect when I think about elite players that are kind of the face of the WTA. I don't think of Casakina yet. Yeah, I, I, I can see why. Um, Kasatkina is someone who's massively impressed me this season. I, sneaky good is a very good, uh, very strong way of, uh, a very apt way of describing her. Because um, I would put her in the counterpuncher category in terms of style of play. Uh, but she's got a little trick. She's, she's quite tricky. She's very hard to break down when she's in the mood. She's very consistent, like Pagula. A little bit less power than Pagula, but can... Uh, again, counter punch away to um, to some strong results that we've seen. I think with Kasatkina, I'm less surprised. I think she had, I, for me, I was like, she's earned her place by that French Open run and winning in um, San Jose, uh, mm-hmm. WCA 500. Um, she won in Cleveland, it, I believe, too. Or Grand. She won in she won in the, the, the WTA 250 the week before the US Open, I think, in it, Grand. It was Grand B, yeah. yeah Grand B, yeah. Uh, yeah, she's had some very strong results over the course of the year. And um, yeah, I, for me, I quite like Kasakina as well. Um, so to me, she's, uh, I'm quite glad to say, so I, I don't forget she's there. Um, I think, I, it, like when I'm thinking about it, if I think about sort of peaks throughout the year again, if you were to use peaks to define the WTA finals, I would have swapped out Sabalenka for Danielle Collins based on her Australian Open final um, run um, because I think I think it's a semi-final plus a 500 title versus a semi-final plus a runners-up. And I would say Kasekina edges Sabalenka for me in terms of surprising this. Um, um, and Sakharov's reached two 1,000 finals. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think Daniel Collins is someone that people are disappointed isn't there, and I can understand that she's just not been consistent throughout the year. I think um, she's a player that is, um, you remember how I said Busku is kind of draw dependent? I think Collins is a little bit body dependent, and it's not her own fault. I think she, she struggles with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So there are probably days where she just, doesn't feel it the way an elite athlete should quote unquote feel it and you just have to go out there and and cope with that kind of of similar to venus williams's autoimmune disease where some days you're just not going to have it and it's it's no one's fault it's just kind of the burden you have to bear so i think that kind of reared its head a little bit at multiple points during her season so uh, maybe she'll get there next year maybe it's unfortunate for her um, but she's definitely a dangerous player in any draw she's in, particularly on a hard court. Um, but yeah, well, that was a, that was a fun discussion. I think we really dug into the sort of the players and the stories from Guadalajara. Um, I'm really looking forward to watching the WTA finals. Um, and uh, yeah, I really, I think we really covered uh, everything we should. Um, appreciate we've been talking for an hour. Listeners, bear with us. Um, hopefully you've got time to, to listen to all of this. Uh, but the other topic that are, we're going to discuss today is um, actually uh, nothing about anything that's sort of happened recently. Um, but unless you are following closely, the Wimbledon ballot 
for tickets has now opened uh, and um, I have put my application in um, plenty of others I never put their applications in from uh, the UK and overseas. Um, the ticketing process at Wimbledon is very odd compared to most sporting events, at least outside of the UK, uh, which I might mention again a little bit later. But um, basically, if you uh, don't haven't read anything on our site, Popcorn Tennis, strongly recommend that you do. We've got some great quality content on there, including the latest piece, a really well thought out piece of work. Um, from Hanya, who I introduced earlier. So, um, Hanya, do you want to talk to us, just sort of summarise a little bit about the piece that you wrote and sort of where you were coming from and sort of the conclusions that you've reached? All right. So, basically, my, what I thought of was to summarise my experience attending Wimbledon last year. And I wanted to point out what I thought was a good practice and what I thought was very outdated uh, for a tournament that should be accessible to everyone around the world uh, at, the, at all times, which is not. Um, I'm judging the day I'm, I'm going to start looking for tickets for 2023. It's going to be a mess um, for many reasons. Uh, I'm not sure if we should go through them now. Um, but basically, Wimbledon, they say they want to be accessible to, to all the fans, but they only sell their tickets to mainly two sources, which are the ballot or the queue, which is ridiculous. You cannot simply just go on the website and choose your seats or choose the day you want to attend or choose the player you want to see. And I think that is completely unfair. That's basically why I started thinking about writing the article. Okay, yeah, and that's a and that's a fair a fair point to come from. And it's for me, it's one of those things um, where I am quite I'm quite comfortable with the status quo a lot of the time, and um, and I have some really good you haven't stories. Queued. You haven't queued last year. I have. That's right. <laughs> I have actually. Last year, you did. Oh uh, no, not last year? year. No, no, I didn't oh, queue yeah. last okay. year. I queued okay. in, uh, but I, I queued in 2015, um, 2016, okay. and 2018, um, and um, uh, and all of them were, you know, they were long days. Um, my queue experience is the three times I've done it very different to yours that you kind of quote in the article. So I'll let you share that yourself. Um, but uh, I definitely had very positive experiences from all three of them. And I massively enjoyed it, particularly the third time I queued in 20, 2018. Um, I went with my mum and we ended up with meeting a Russian lady who was a PhD student at Oxford. Um, and was a big fan of Katerina Makarova um, and was going to watch her play Caroline Bosniaki on one of the show courts, which was a match that Makarova ended up winning. So I remember seeing the, looking up and seeing the result and going, oh, our Russian friend who we just met is going to be very pleased. Um, and then I also met two American guys in the queue as well. We had a lot, great discussion about a lot of different topics. Um, but yeah, queuing with friends or um, things like that can be quite a, a fun experience in itself. 
even before getting to the tennis. Um, so, but on reflection and thinking about, well, actually the logistics of queuing is really difficult. Um, so for someone like me, who doesn't live very close to London, um, it takes me about two or three hours on a train to get there. I'm not driving. Um, anyone who's tried to drive in London, I salute you. Um, but um, the logistics of the only way you're going to know you're definitely going is if you queue. Um, I completely appreciate it's a massive headache and there are days where I wish I knew I had tickets so that I could go. So I completely agree with your assessment that I want to, I think there need to be other avenues available, but I would also want to keep the things that exist because I do see the pro, there are some strong points. There. I do. I, my main problem with the queue is basically that they sell the grand passes through them, which is my main issue like there's no reason for me to queue since 5 a.m just to get a grand pass it's 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 a it's like if you're going if you're aiming to go for center courts uh or court one two maybe even three it's fine and you want to take the wimbledon experience it's fine but if you're going for a ground pass why do I have to queue with people who are going for center court? I think my like my main issue basically is that ground passes need to be available online. There's no need for everybody who just want to enter the ground to queue at the same time. It's just need this headache. Yeah, I, I actually really wish that we could have someone from Wimbledon on uh, or speak to someone from Wimbledon to understand their thought process. Because I agree with you, like buying ground pass, I think buying a ground pass online would be great um, for all kinds of accessibility reasons. Um, again, very different experience to you, but I actually joined the queue at 7 or 7.30 a.m., still got a ground pass, didn't have a problem getting in. Um, you did queuing from 5 a.m. and having to miss the start of a match. I think it depends on which match you're trying to see um, sometimes. That was my experience on the first day, really. Like, I mean, if they know that the matches start out on the outside court at 11 a.m. So if you want people to actually make the 11 a.m. matches, you either need to start moving the quite quick, quite earlier, or just separate the lines. The people going for ground passes move earlier than the, the show courts because you get there like 5 or 6 a.m., and then you just sit there for three or four hours doing absolutely nothing until they decide to move the queue at 10 a.m. And then you start your day at 11 and you have to spend the entire day. It's, it's needless headache. Like, yeah. it's, I, I'm interested because I'm going to go in 2023. Um, if um, I'm again, hopefully I'm successful in the ballot, but whether I am or not, I am also going to queue because I want to do the queue again, um, because I want that queue experience again. And I've queued in the sun, I've queued in the rain. I've enjoyed every moment of it. Um, but I um, I don't remember the queue moving that late. I'm wondering whether it's because of maybe COVID protocols in 2022. Maybe. But um, I don't, Every day I've went, I went for like seven days, seven different days last year for ground passes every day they started moving at 10 by the end of the tournament they started getting more efficient and quicker 
but like the first couple of days where it mattered the most, the, the, the 11 a.m. matches, I missed the first set, set of all the 11 a.m. matches. Mm. And there and was no that, other. If I look, like, I'm fully expecting that in 2023, if I queue, maybe I'll have the same experience. Um, let's see sort of how the organization goes. I think that the broader point around because obviously it's a frustrating experience i think i still agree with your broader point that it does need to be made available because i don't fancy traveling two hours to then find a hotel to then queue from a really early time I and mean, i've done that before um and it's and there's, fine there's a really important point that they keep forgetting is that if they want people to to join the queue at Wimbledon at like five or six to get the good tickets that means that for a large number of these fans who don't live in central London, they're going to have to use the night tube or Uber or any other transportation because the, the trains will not have started operating yet. So that's like extra, like more money and more headache. So why? That's my yeah. question. Why? <laughs> I, and I think it's a legacy from a pre-online era. You know, it's Wimbledon. They like to do things. They like to be the tennis tournament that is the way it always is so you can compare it to history. And I think there's a value in that identity. Um, but there's also there's also a need to, to move with the times a bit. There are people who might need to book um, tickets in advance, either because they're traveling or because maybe they know it's not necessarily the easiest if they have a disability. And um, it's... Uh, it, it worked back in the days before online existed or you could buy things online um, because, well, let's face it, how else are you going to do? Ring up and ask if there were tickets. Um, it's it's one of those things. So um, it's one of those things that yeah, you do need to, I, I would agree, Wimbledon does need to move with the times a bit. Um, what I liked about your article was that there was this balance of we need a hybrid form. We don't need to completely move away from the ballot and the queue. Um, we just don't need to be a hundred percent of um, the way you would get tickets now. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I respect the traditions. Um, if they want to be different than other measures, um, I respect that. They still can keep the queue and and the ballot and everything, uh, but there need to be other form ways to get tickets. Like I've checked the French Open, the U.S. Open even Australia open, they're, they're very easy to navigate. They're very easy to get tickets to. I mean, maybe it's because the stadium itself, they're quite bigger. They have more access to, to accommodate more people. But still, like, the ballot is luck. And the, the queue is, again, luck because it depends on when you get there. So... I need something other than luck. <laughs> I need to, to know if, that I can access a website where I can navigate, choose my seat, choose the day, and just get the ticket. And that's not available at one building. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I completely see where you're coming from. Um, I think, interestingly enough, um, if I'm thinking about experience of uh, getting tickets to sports events in, in Britain, and um, it's uh, it's a little different um, in many ways, actually, Wimbledon and the way it does things is very British 
Um, obviously, Q is one of the most iconic things about British people. It's a massive stereotype. Um, but, you know, you can still queue to get tickets for football matches, which is one of the biggest sports in the UK, um, especially if they're a lower league team. Um, ballots are also um, still pretty big. The only way you can get tickets for uh, Commonwealth Games was through a ballot. Um, the only way that you could get back in 2012 for the Olympics, I remember, is um, applied in the ballot and um, what we got wasn't really achievable for us. But the only way to get tickets for the 2012 Olympic Games was actually through a ballot, um, which is interesting so given it's one of the biggest sporting events in the world. Um, mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I haven't been to any sporting events other than a tennis match, a tennis tournament. Um, but um, even other LTA events you buy in line on quite a So you see a mixture. It depends on the sport a lot of the time, but it is a very British thing, the, this, the way the system has been set up. I think yeah, but I mean, if you look at the other ATP or WTA tour tournaments happening in, in England, like uh, Queens or Eastbourne, they're pretty straightforward too. I just go on the website. I choose whether I want a ground pass or, or a stadium. And even when I want to go to a match, I get to choose my seat and the day I'm going to. And, and they can be progressive. What My question is, why don't they apply what's happening at Queens and Eastbourne to Wimbledon? And again, it's that's a, a question we'd need to ask Wimbledon because that's the, we can we can sit here and say it needs to work like this, and I think it definitely should. But I I would be fascinated to see to, to talk to someone and say, well, this is why we do it. And I'm not necessarily saying that they would have good reasons for it, but I I'm always interested in hearing people's reasons. Um, I mean, and it might just be a cultural thing. I need a reason that's not. The Wimbledon experience, because that's not a reason for me. The whole Q experience, that's just marketing. Just that's the reason they put out there to convince people to queue for hours and not even choosing the seats they're going to sit in. So I need, I mean, so the only thing I can think of is that the stadiums at Wimbledon are pretty small compared to other tournaments. So they need to make sure that the accessibility is fair, but still, I mean, the whole essence of a ballot is that it's luck and not fairness. So how is it fair? Uh, possibly. I mean, I quite like the sort of anticipation, not knowing what I'm going to get. And um, yeah, I've, I've got, um, I mean, look, I may not get anything this time around, um, but that will We'll kind of, uh, kind of deal with that. Uh, I, I think it is fair if you've got enough people just to make sure everyone gets a ticket. Because the downside of a first come first serve online ticket is the website crash with a lot of traffic, um, or if you're too slow, you, you're out of tickets. Like if you think about people who want to get um, gigs or whatever, you have to be on that website when they go live. I don't think there's enough tennis fans in the world that would necessarily sell out. Wimbledon in seconds uh, that doesn't even happen at the US Open um, but um, there are there are uh, sort of flaws about systems and um, I guess I'm kind of taking that student kind of to play a little bit of devil's advocate um, but also just to put forward that yes yeah, some people do actually like the Wimbledon experience 
but there are days where it does my head in. I mean, give give the other people who don't like the Wimbledon experience another option. Like you cannot force everybody to live the Wimbledon experience because some people have other responsibilities during the day other than to to wake up at five in the morning and queue for like hours for for absolutely no reason at all. I mean, I end point is I respect the traditions. However, if they want to keep it, they need to update. The, the, their criteria of, of selling tickets to make it more more accessible to, to people living abroad even. I think it's very UK-centric, the way they yeah. sell tickets. And I think they need to think about the ground passes and how they're giving, it, giving them to people. Um, and they need to think about the fact that if you return a ticket on the website, if you buy a ticket and then return it, that's it. You cannot buy another day. You just get one chance. Yeah, that that is the thing that irritates me the most. Um, it, because yeah, it's, that that's not fair. Because um, you know, people still want to go. They may not just like what they've been offered. Um, it also doesn't make sense from a business perspective because you want as many people to buy tickets as possible. Um, so that that I don't think I could come up with a reason that's good enough to manage it that way. And um, so I think that was a point that you raised that I must agree with. Oh, actually, I also agree with the point that you raised about international ballots. Um, yeah. I know our friend Funch is applying for international ballots. And I'm, I'm aware that that's a little bit of a trickier process. Again, standard. Again, British. we're talking about people who do not need to get a visa to enter the UK. We're talking about Americans. What about yeah. the other half of the world that that go through an endless month of process to enter the UK. They need to have their, their tickets and everything sorted earlier on. So they, they arrange for all of that. And I don't think that's taken into consideration either. Did you write about that actually? Or no, that's that one of the points, yeah, that's one of the points I told you I forgot to mention. Fair. Um, I mean, one of my favourite, I, I didn't go to Wimbledon in 2022. I kind of regret that I didn't. I kind of kept my diary open to be able to, but um, I was a little, I, I had my reasons for not going. Um, and it was the logistics of getting down there at such short notice in, uh, were tricky because I didn't plan ahead. I didn't know the situation with the pandemic or anything like that. But one of my favourite sort of things was sort of, seeing the updates that particularly you, Hanya, were putting out of being able to, of jumping on the Wimbledon site, grabbing what tickets you could and getting in the next day on the um, on the online thing. Because obviously they, they do sell tickets online, they just make them available the next, the, the day before. Um, and the problem with the online thing is that they don't even tell you when they're releasing the tickets. You need to dedicate yourself on the website for the 24 hours before the match you want to attend and refresh like your life depends on it. And that's again yeah. a waste of time. <laughs> Sounds a bit like trying to get tickets for Comic-Con yeah. from, from yeah, people I know yeah. who've tried to go. Yeah. And I don't think that's even fair. Like I need to know, like just tell us that the, the, the tickets, the resale are going to be released the day before at 10 a.m., and let people join the queue online and live in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, 
just um just because i'm uh just because i'm curious um uh, miles um what's your experience been like getting tickets for the us open has it been fairly simple from you as hanya has taken a cursory glance she's never actually been um but is it entirely online you just book in advance how far in advance can you get tickets um <laughs> I am terrible with logistics of ticketing for tennis. And the past two years that I've gone to the U.S. Open, my friend Brian has pretty much been in control of all of that. But I do remember um, the tickets being unnecessarily expensive this year because it was, it was marketed as Serena's last, you know, hoorah. But um, it was fairly simple. You just kind of go on Ticketmaster or StubHub, see a ticket that's in your price range, putting your credit card information and boom. As it should be. <laughs> that was it. I mean, obviously Brian got them, but um, do you know how far in advance he managed to get them? Oh, like the week of. Like, week off. Yeah, we weren't necessarily trying to get the best seats in the house. We just wanted to be in the house, um, especially on one of Serena's matches on Arthur Ashe. But um. Yeah, like grounds passes and stuff like that. You can get them like the day before. Just because yeah. like nothing, nothing was like super sold out. It was expensive. And you kind of had to do like your shopping and refreshing to make sure you got the best deal. But um, we got tickets like for the next session while we were at a current session. So it was pretty easy. Because I was looking at tickets, like I, I was checking the US Open website a lot. And obviously they were pushing people buying tickets. Um, and something that I noticed was that you could get tickets directly through the USA for site. So I don't know whether they were just more expensive than Ticketmaster or anything else, but um, that was um, something else. I think I, I, something else that might be worth um, asking about. But um, I was actually thinking that talk about um, expense and actually I will... I will say this, that actually Wimbledon tickets are actually quite good value for money. Um, that's one positive in their favour. So I don't know what a US Open grounds pass is. A Wimbledon grounds pass is £27 or $31 a minute. Um, Miles' mouth is open, so I don't know whether that's it's, low or high. It's less than 40 bucks for a grounds pass at Wimbledon. Yeah. yeah, and that's on the opening day where you can get more matches. Um, so it doesn't really matter who's the marquee match, does it? No, so that's a no. Yeah, so they don't change the, the they don't change the prices. They are fixed. Doesn't matter who's playing at the U.S. Open. I wish they would take that little tidbit and fix prices because depending on who's on Arthur Ashe, or depending on who's on like Louis Armstrong, which is the second tier court they will fluctuate prices depending on who's the marquee name. So I don't love that, but as far as accessibility, you can see that the tickets are available. It's just about how much do you want to sacrifice your rent or whatever for. Yeah. No, so basically the Wimbledon prices are pretty fr fixated and they tell you like a year before, I think they already released the 2023 prices that each day is going to cost this much on this court. And regardless who, who's reaching the final, this is how much the final of Wimbledon 2023 is going to cost. Mm. That's not fair because I specifically remember 
I think, yeah, I think Brian went to the 2015 U.S. Open. If he's listening to this, I might be wrong. But I know somebody went to the 2015 U.S. Open, the year that Serena was going for the calendar year Grand Slam. And the tickets to the women's final, the price plummeted as soon as Serena lost, which, like, I get from one standpoint, because, like, a Serena going for history is obviously much more of a I need to be there kind of moment, but it doesn't justify the ticket prices going from super inflated to 30 bucks a piece to watch Flavia Panetta versus Roberta Vinci, you know? So, so my, my, I need to be there moment was the Federer match in 2021, his, his, his quarter final one. And that was, (laughs) A sad match, yeah, I know. But that one was like 175 pounds, which is how many dollars? Um, let me get the calculator out. Um, because I just I'm not, I'm not good at that either. <laughs> no, no, it's like I've um I just googled it. 175 pounds to dollars, um, 203 yeah. US dollars. Yeah, that's not terrible for what ended up being Roger Federer's last professional match or last Grand Slam match. That's not, that's not terrible, you know? And the Wimbledon yeah. finals, I don't know, really exactly, is it 250 or 255 pounds for those? But that's about 290 to 296 US dollars um, for fits for both the men's and the women's final. Um, which... Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's a lot of money. It would be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Um, but um, I would um, I would say that still, for most, compared to a lot of sporting events, or even a lot of events, are still pretty good. Um, and like I said, I mean, I would quite happily spend £1, $30 um, to, to go to a grounds part and watch whatever match I wanted outside of a show court for about 12 hours out of my day. And yeah. so I think we could kind of say that even though Wimbledon basically needs to fix its logistics, but keep the prices, US Open needs to keep its logistics, but fix the prices. Wimbledon needs to be universal-based, not UK-centric. That's, that's the summary of our discussion, basically. The fair conclusion to reach. Um, yeah. So I appreciate we've probably been talking for about an hour and 20 minutes-ish. Um, so I'm happy to call it there. Um, but uh, I think we've had an interesting discussion. Um, best of luck anyone who is applying for Wimbledon tickets. I hope uh, you get in. Um, Hanya, I know you've applied. Um, yeah. I've applied. Fingers crossed. I will look. Uh, would you, would you, I know you hate the key. Would you at least key with me? Uh, I will. Definitely. Okay. I'm gonna doing go it. Easy days, every day, but like <laughs> we need to offer, I, offer an option, another option for the ground yeah. pass. Yeah, they should definitely step into the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, they're slowly doing it. To be fair, they're slowly moving there. They'll they'll get there eventually in about by about 2050, right? Um, <laughs> I don't like being negative about Wimbledon because it is my favourite tennis tournament and I have a lot of nostalgia for it I think it's a great setup in a lot of other ways um, I but nothing's really... yeah. sorry? Um, nothing's um, things... oh sorry go ahead sorry no I'm just saying we're not being ne- negative we're just hoping to for them to be more as 
open and accessible as they claim to be. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Um, keep an eye on the Popcorn Tennis Podcast feed as in a couple of days. Uh, Shrihari will be back. Um, apologies if you've missed him. If you were hoping he'd be part of this discussion, couldn't make it today. Um, but um, Shrihari will be back. He'll be back with Jethro um, and um, a special guest to discuss um, Daniel Medvedev and Dominic Team, who, as of this recording, are playing tomorrow. Um, not their match specifically, but just sort of their years as a whole. Um, so I'm looking forward to to listening to that. Um, I just want to say thank you so much, Miles, for coming on. Um, it was super last minute when I asked you, um, and um, I appreciate it was a bit of a panic, um, but we got you on in the end, and it was a really, really good discussion. So really, thank you for that, and thank you, Hani, for coming on and having and putting your case forward for a more accessible Wimbledon. Um, and I hope you're an excellent part of this podcast as always um so yeah thank you both and i Thanks. will see you and we i will speak to all of you listeners um sometime soon <laughs>